0: Welcome into Natchez Glenhouse Stories, I've Lost Count. That's what we're calling this. The I Have Lost Count Natchez Glenhouse Stories episode. And I wanted to take a second and talk about where we're at in the garden, real time, We're in the future time of August. For warm parts of the world, you know, we have this whole zonal map thing, which people have been using forever. And here's where it means nothing, right? So I'm in Tennessee. We would be considered like a 7B, where there are chunks of California and Oregon and Washington State that are also, wait for it, 7B. But our weather could not be any different. These zones were established based upon cold hardiness. Winter hardiness of crops, meaning this plant does not perform well or dies below this minimum temperature. And the zones are changed or upgraded or downgraded based upon a 10 year average, meaning over a 10 year average, the low in your area was like zero to 10. You're a 7B. Zero to 10. You're a six and so forth. That's all it meant. It didn't ever mean a reflection of like your actual weather. It didn't mean in the spring in a place like Oregon or Washington, it's super temperate and you don't have early heat where in like Alabama, Tennessee, Arkansas, this region of the country, we have super early heat. So there's no real takeaway from this whole zonal thing. And this was on my mind and wanted to talk about it today because on the gram, because of course, that's where I live, people. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm actually not even a real person. It's completely virtual. I only exist on Instagram. It's really fascinating. There was a dahlia grower who suggested, and it wasn't really suggested, it was sort of told that if you're growing dahlias, you should not fertilize them anymore because if they get too much excess nitrogen, in their soil, the tubers that they will create will be more prone to rot when you go to store them. Now, if this was 1982, and you were putting out a newsletter or a magazine, and most of the people that were reading that content were local to your area, which this grower is in New York State, that would be pretty accurate. Not completely, but pretty. In my zone, we've got 60 more days of this. And by the way, the next 10 days, most of the daytime highs have the word 90 in it. We are nowhere close to wrapping this show up. We are not only still at the height of it, but we're also at the height of stress. So these dahlias aren't going the other way, right? They're still actively growing. They still need nutrients. They're still trying to do something. So if you're a gardener at home, here's what concerns me about that kind of information. You hear this person who grows some dahlias and they tell you, well, stop fertilizing your dahlias. But you're in one of these type parts of the country. And you do that, and now suddenly your dahlias are like, meh, you know, it's hot out. There's not a lot of nutrient in this soil. I'm just going to call it a day. And they start to not do well for you. So again, I think it's one of the things that has been historically so challenging for many of the people that have talked about gardening. They have not traveled a lot. They have not gardened or grown plants many times outside of their own little area of the world. And that's not always great to share information with. If you're trying to share information about how to grow a plant, but you've only grown them in upper New York state, Michigan, the Pacific Northwest, of course, it's not really relatable to so many other people. So you got to be careful when they're putting out that kind of information. So if you are growing dahlias, what do you do? What do you do? What do we do, Steve? Okay, I get it. Don't listen to this person. There's two ways to look at it. If you're in a warm part of the United States of America, let's call that Kansas down to Texas and over. We're in this big swatch of the country, sometimes called the Mid-South, the Southeast, over into even the Atlantic Coast area, like Virginia, Maryland over there. Your dahlia, specifically, have been blooming for a minute. Many times you should have had blooms for maybe even the mid part of June, the early stages of July. But those flowers have been producing a lot. And if you've been cutting from them like you should, you should still be seeing flowers. So the rule of thumb for me is two things. If I want to store my dahlia tubers, I'm like, you know what? These dahlias, I'm digging them. I'm lifting them. I'm going to keep them and I want them to do as well as I should, there's truth to the fact that you should not use a heavy nitrogen fertilizer. But we know if we're paying attention, if we're playing the at-home Nachos Glen game, we know we're really not feeding dahlias right now a lot of nitrogen anyways. It's not what we're trying to get them to do. We're not trying to get them to grow green stuff. We're not trying to force them to create more vegetative growth, which then therefore would lead to more tuber production. We are trying to get them to solely produce flowers. The last 60 to 75 days of dahlia, from like your average last frost date or first frost date of the year rather, your first frost date of the year, about 60 days before that, I'm pretty much eliminating nitrogen anyways because by that stage, we should be having plants that are flowering. So I'm just going with my potassium And my phosphates, phosphorus, the P and the K, the two numbers on the bag, three numbers on the bag, the two second numbers are the ones we're focusing in on. That's where I'm feeding anyways. At about 30 days before that frost date, I'm going to just sort of evaluate where we're at. And I'm probably still going to be feeding if I want the plants to really actively produce. If we want to get the best from these plants, the three numbers on the bag, the two secondary numbers should be around 10 to 15, anywhere in that range. So we're feeding with something like a 0, 10, 10, a 0, 12, 12, 0, 15, 15, something like that. The nitrogen's not there anyways. So any kind of threat of tuber failure which is essentially what we would be talking about. We'd be talking about uh, this is what your fear would be, okay? We're going to walk through the steps of this. If a dahlia is producing tuberous growth, and then it is harvested, and it's harvested too soon, it means this. This is what happens. The tuber has not calloused off. It's not hardened off yet. It's really, 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 really super tender. So because of that, it's like a young baby tuber. It's new to the world. If that happens, it is going to be more prone to rot or fungal issues. That's why we don't want to see that type of production. But when you lower that nitrogen number, you're really not seeing it anyways. And quite frankly, this is one of these things too. Depending upon your soil type, depending upon your weather, depending upon your climate, we could keep going here. There's a lot of depending ons. You could eliminate fertilization 60 days before your average first frost, and still see something like that happen. Many times, plants are going to do what plants are going to do. If you're in a warm climate, what you should be doing is this, monitoring those dahlias. This is also a time, if you have failed in dahlias, if your dahlias dahlias have collapsed, they've fallen, they can't get up, they need a life alert bracelet, whatever their case is, You actually have a chance here to try to correct some of that. If you have very weak stems on your dahlia, you can cut them down significantly. Maybe they're 36, 40 inches tall and they're a little bit leggy. You can cut them back by two or three leaf sets and then stake them if you miss staking. You can furrow them up like we did on an Instagram video, which is up as an Instagram highlight. You can do that. And then you've got 60 days for that plant to make a bloom. And most of those dahlias are going to still give you a bloom. No, it might be the second, third week in October, which we're still going to get it. You're still going to get some flowers out of the plant. So this is not the time to throw in the white flag. That's what I'm getting at here, people. I had this conversation with one of volunteers earlier today. In this part of the country, warm climates, September and October should be two of your really good months. It's one of the, the, in this part of the world, we get about four months of the growing season where you're like, oh, that's nice. They're called April and May. And then they're usually called like September, October, June, July, and August. Make no mistake. Those are rough months as a grower and a gardener. It is hot plants are under stress, the weeds, the bugs, the disease, they've all shown up to the party uninvited. And now you've got to do something. Where September and October, September sometimes being a swing month, just like May is in climates like this, are a little more mild and moderate. Even right now, we are very hot today in 94, but the nighttime temp is still like 69. So it's 69 degrees overnight you're golden. It's not as bad. The times we're gardening and plants struggle is this. 96 as a high, 77 as a low. That's where it gets dicey on these plants. So when I hear people say, I'm wrapping up my flower growing, you're doing this commercially, or I'm wrapping up my gardening for the year in September, I'm like, what? That but, what? But, The movie is not even halfway over. Keep going. A garden should be as good in September and October as it was in April and May. If we don't have that, we're just not doing it right yet. And trust me, we'll get there, aka gardening school. But those are things that we've really got to start looking at. And I also think it's really boring if we're doing a garden we're growing flowers and we're literally saying it's all April and May. As a garden, how lame is that? The majority of the year, June, July, August, September, October, five months is nothing. And two months it is? Well, that's no good. And if it's a business, as a flower grower for profit, Even worse. So you mean 60 days out of the year you produce something? The other literal 150, you don't? That's even more scary. And that's why it is very important to have things like this. And you can do this in a home garden setup too. Give you a quick heads up on this. Gladiolas, Great example. So gladiolas are about 50 to 60 days to bloom from ground. The corm, the bulb in the ground, 50 to 60 days. So for me, I'm always sort of nursing some things along. Like gladiolas that I got earlier in the year, I'm just sort of holding them in pots, keeping them alive, but not really going yet. They're breaking dormancy a little bit. I showed this with dahlias recently too. So I'm just keeping them going like potted plants almost, right? I'm not quite getting them to bloom, but I'm not letting them die off either. And then I'm planting them in the ground, in the garden. I'm successionally planting a little bit more advanced crop than just doing seeds. And you can do it with seeds too. But with that case, it's just a little bit more stressful. Direct sowing flowers in warm climates is not a real win all the time, except for sunflowers. Sunflowers are the move, people. If you want to do flowers for production? We're going to talk about this eventually with my friend Georgia from Basecamp Farms. If you want to really start the flower growing as a business, as a flower farm? Sunflowers, people. It's the move. We'll talk. But as a gardener, that's so important. We used to see this a lot more with what were called bedding plants. And bedding plants were essentially annuals, things like petunias, that kind of vibe, some geraniums or different varieties that were used as bedding plants. And what would happen to keep the garden exciting is you would do it successionally. You'd have your spring annual. You'd rip them out. You put in your early summer annuals. you rip them out. You put in your summer annuals, your fall annuals. And it would be this where there was always something going on. And because we wanted to use the scourge of existence of gardening called low maintenance, that went away. Well, that's what we need to get back to. If you wanted a garden to be magical, we've got to look at it. Like we're creating a show that goes the whole year. And are you going to have struggles along the way? Absolutely. Will your dahlias fall down sometimes by the time you get to September and you'll be like, what? Don't worry. There's still time to fix these things. That's why I wanted to clarify both the fertilization misnomer and then also how you approach it. How are you going to get the most out of that garden throughout the year and stop looking at it as such an April, May experience only? Also want to touch on a little bit of an industry, me, flowers, local flowers, what this all means to you as, you know, a human being in the world. So a friend of mine who grows flowers in Kentucky posted something talking about she had asked the people that follow her on social media to define for her how they look at the word local flowers and what that means to you. And one of the real frequent responses to local flowers was the word wildflowers. And this is a thesis that I had pretty early. And I'll give you a bit of a backstory here. Story time with Steve. When we were in Connecticut for the two-year Tundra experience, my daughter and I went to a farmer's market. It was in Stonington, Connecticut, which is right along the uh, Long Island Sound Coast, a little bit past that. Really pretty sort of a summery, beachy, New England town kind of vibe. And the farmer's market was relatively small, but well-frequented by locals and people that are seasonal locals. Well, we were growing dahlias up there in Connecticut too. Go figure. And that's it. Like, just dahlias to the maximum. And when I would go to farmer's markets... I would always notice there were some people doing some things. It was zinnias. It was maybe some calangela, straw flowers, you know, these type things. And they're always like in mason jars or something along those lines. And I would see them at really low prices, like a mason jar with some flowers in it, like $7. And it always struck me as, how are you going to make money off of that? Even if you sell 30 of these things, it's like $210. That was one of the things that led me to not want to do those type flowers as a business. It's going to be really hard, no matter how much you try as a grower, to show a consumer that the flowers that you're growing from seed and putting all this time and energy and effort into Aren't wildflowers when so many of which are actually growing sort of are species wise, they lean towards wildflowers. I'll pick on one here locally Rubeckii, Echinacea. All of those type plants are wildflowers here. There's a species variety that does grow natively here. So people are so accustomed to that flower shape and color and texture in the wild, in a field, over there, it's a field. What's in it? Rubeckii. It's going to be difficult to grow a cultivated variety of Rubeckii and sell it for any kind of money that's a business. And even in gardens, as there was a real push towards natives, a lot of gardens started to look a little wild-y, naturalized. And that's cool. Like, that's your vibe. I've seen all kinds of what I believe are woodland prairies that are planted as cultivated gardens. And it's not my cup of tea, but I I, I see it. I'm with you. And for flower growers, I think that's a real dilemma as well. How do you balance that? You want to grow things that are maybe a little lower cost, a little quicker, things like rhubachii, but at the same time, they are seen as wildflowers. And now you're asking a customer to maybe pay 2 $3 a stem for something they think grows in a field. That's a challenge. Another example of this would be daffodils. There are so many good daffodils, a.k.a. Narcissus. But in this portion of the world, and many, Daffodils were planted historically, and you will just see standard, traditional, white or yellow cup daffodils just growing in fields randomly. If you tell a customer, hey, I'm growing daffodils, they're not going to get as excited. They're going to be like, yeah, uh uh-huh, I saw some in a ditch. That makes them a challenging flower to grow for profit. Of course, there are incredible daffodil varieties now. Triples, apricots, salmons, fragrant, super long stems. Like there's a huge diversity. But when we're talking about just challenges that you're putting in front of yourself, that's going to be one is getting that customer to start to see local flowers is not associated with wild flowers, And I think a few too many times, the narrative of local flower and wildflower have shared space together. And because of them sharing that space, there's no business to it. People are like, yeah, I've got scissors. I know where there's a field. I've got a mason jar. I'll make my own. Cut out the middle person. And I think some local growers take a little bit of offense at that because they've grown those from seed. They've put them under grow lights. They've nurtured them. They've moved up their transplanted, planted plugs. Now they're in the ground. They've nurtured them. They've fertilized them. They've done this. They asked the candlestick maker what to do. They have put in effort. But at the end of the day, the visual Of the plant, the flower is wildflower. So, what's the answer to that? I think it's a simple one. We've got to offset and change some of the narrative of local flower. Local flowers should mean premium flowers. Hard to find flowers. Unique flowers. You know what someone could do me a favor of right now? I'm talking to anyone who's watching this, listening to this. Here's what you do. You live in the Mid-South area, right? We're going to call it Southern-ish. Start growing clematis for cut flowers. Just clematis. Do you know how many interesting clematis slash clematis? I go clematis. It's more the European pronunciation versus clematis. There are in the world now. There are literally thousands of clematis varieties. Spring blooming, summer blooming, fall blooming. Multiple classifications. Some bloom on new wood. Some bloom on old wood. There's even annual clematis. There's such diversity in these groups and I I feel like there's so many things for people to grow, but everybody sort of grows the same things. If people go seeds, they do zinnias. If people go seeds, they go halanthias. If they do this, they do lisianthus. It's just a very traditional thing. Dahlias, obviously a lot of people grow them. For me, I wanted to do rose because not a lot of people do an awesome field-grown roses in the southern United States of America. So for me, I was like, dahlias and roses are the schniz. I will do these two. They overlap. What one does well, the other doesn't do well. They play together nicely in bouquets and I just like growing them both and I'm good at it. But everybody that has seed production always does the same things. And a lot of those plants are going to look a little, wait for it, wildflowery. If you want to diversify If we want to make local flowers successful, they can't be compared to things that grow in fields. They have to be looked at as a premium product because as local flower growers, you're never going to have the two things that international flowers will always beat you on, convenience and cost. And if we know we can't compete, On convenience and cost. Well, what can we compete on? Interest. Unique. Beauty. Rarity. Those are things we can beat them on. And there aren't a lot of large domestic or large international growers doing things like awesome clematis variety. That's not out there. But yet, Not a lot of people step to that. And I'm not quite sure why yet. still sort of fascinating to me. I do think I know why. Rhymes with the word ORET. You can't follow a blueprint and a model that we haven't seen actually work or succeed in a real marketplace kind of way. And what people are growing are going to lead them down a very simple path to do either farmer's markets with flowers or provide wholesale. And on the wholesale front, they'll be seen as wildflowers. And on the farmer's market front, for sure, they will be defined as wildflowers. And That's just not going to give you a lot of competition or room to do anything in the flower world. You would be much better doing a 60-40 split as you begin. Go with commodities. Go with something you can accomplish like sunflowers. And then start to think about what that premium product line is going to be that you're going to grow. What is that going to look like for me? If I'm in a really warm climate, maybe I'm looking at something completely outside the box, like camellia, and seeing, are there camellias that could be great? cut flowers, if you're a little bit further north of there, maybe you're thinking about something like Clemens. Maybe you're diversifying to such an extent that you become really specialized. And nobody not in your town has that product, but maybe in the entire region of the United States, and maybe the country. And now you can ship flowers and move flowers and get good at that game of it. And you're not competing with the international flower market. And I recently recorded uh, the flower podcast with my friend Scott, who came and paid a visit. And it's one of the things I shared with him that I'll share with you now is so many people getting into the cut flower business are unaware, completely naive to the international flower business. We can't keep doing that. It's like opening up a hamburger restaurant and going, wait a second. There's fast food hamburgers? Why didn't somebody tell me? And just not being aware. What is their product? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it priced high? Is it priced low? And many times there's an assertion by the local flower grower that these big international growers are not doing a good job And that is not true. From a technical perspective, all the ethical workers' rights, labor rights, human rights issues that maybe those things infringe upon, if you take those out of the conversation and just go, are they growing a technically very solid flower? Are they doing a good job as a grower you would have to answer yes. And that is something that a lot of these local growers need to get over and admit to. So when we're growing something, we're not going to grow it to the technical efficiency that they are. Their resources are limitless because they pay nothing in labor. Their oversights are none because they don't have them. And it's all about just getting that flower to be exactly like the other one and then making them durable for transportation and shipping and storage. So when we talk about vase life, when we talk about that, like any of those things, we're probably going to lose. Where are we going to win? Beauty, awesomeness, fragrance, color, texture, all the things that flowers are about we're going to win. But if we keep trying to just bat down this one lane, oh, our flowers are good at vase life too. Our local flowers are sustainably grown. Dot, 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 dot. It's not going to win. Our flowers have to be more beautiful, more interesting, more unique, hard to find, unseen, new, shiny objects. The end. Do you know how many cool flowers there are in the world? It is limitless. Limitless. We don't have to go down those roads. But when you grow things that are very wildflower-y, we're not giving ourselves a great head start. Which leads me, in conclusion, to two remaining topics. Topic number one. Tulips. Yes, that's right. It's tulip time. Uh, Yes. This is the time of year where I make a decision on how many tulips to grow. The challenge with tulips is following on our last conversation on it that to grow tulips, you have to pick one that's really interesting. You have to pick a tulip that is beautiful and unique and different and big and bold and has a great color tone to it. All the things you don't typically see from the tulip market. But then the business side of it kicks in. What are people going to pay for a half dozen tulips in a bouquet? Are people going to pay $20 for a bouquet of really beautiful, huge tulips? Or can they source small, single, stem tulips? At mass market grocery stores that we know are going to be very cheap. We know those are going to be cheap. It may be as low as six of those for $7. So we've got to make sure the tulips we grow are really beautiful, but can still compete because the bulbs that you buy, as an FYI here, the bulbs of the really interesting tulip varieties are guess what? Way more expensive than the standard classic small, early tulips. So that's all got to be balanced in this equation. As a gardener, by the way, this is also the time to definitely be thinking of fall planting of tulips. This is another thing that there's great misinformation on as far as where you can, when and where you can plant tulips. In warm parts of the country, you can plant tulips all the way into December with no issues. In cold parts of the country you have to consider when you plant your tulips, primarily because the ground freezes and you can't plant tulips. That's it. Tulips can go through cold. In fact, they need a certain amount of chill hours, but typically speaking, they're going to make it as long as you're in a December latest timeline. I wouldn't go into January to plant tulips, even in warm climates, but even into December, you're okay. One of the things you Can have a challenge with in warm climate is you can almost plant too early. Like this is September, right? We're sort of in the fall kind of part of the world, but it's 95 degrees out. Would I be planting tulips in 95 degree weather? Uh, The answer to that would be no. Two reasons. Number one, you may actually see the tulip go through some kind of weird activation, which I've seen before. And then number two, it gets so hot, the tulip bulb itself can actually dehydrate and die. So we need to make sure that we're into that moderate cycle of fall in warm climates before we plant them. It was like a two-for-one. I talked about the business of tulips as a cut flower grower, and then we transitioned to gardening talk. This is what you get and Not just Glenhouse Stories, by the way, people. It's what you get. Get two-for-one. Get business talk. Get gardening talk. It's all sort of interwoven through a stream of consciousness of tulips. That is topic one of two. Topic two of two gardening school. If you are listening to this podcast, you should also be buying the gardening school. Can I share that with you? you should be buying gardening school when it launches, coming up in a week or so. Here's how it's going to work. Here's the deets. Gardening school works like this. Every month, we're going to have two classes, online and in person. First class is going to have myself and a guest. The guests will either join us in person, where the guest will join us live on technology. Probably a Facebook group live. That guest is going to be an expert on a specific topic of plant or plant pathology or a particular element of the horticultural world of a plant growing and doing things. That will be the focus of that month. As an example, soil. We'll talk about soil how to get your soil ready for the upcoming spring. And then we'll have an expert about soil join us either live, probably live for the soil talk. And then also when you're joining us via anywhere in the world, via online, you have to ask questions and participate and have all of that there for you so you can get the most out of it. Then also in the same online forum throughout the course of the month, I'll have little things for you to do to get yourself ready in that month. The whole goal of the garden school is gonna work like this We're gonna start it in October, then October, November, December, January, February, March, and then April is to get you ready for 2020 gardening. That's what we're going for. We're gonna make 2020 the year. That is the year. If you have not gardened before, you're going to garden and impress your friends. If you are a gardener, you're going to become even better gardener. We're going to make sure that 2020 is the greatest gardening experience you've ever had of your life. The other thing that we will do, there'll be some discount codes, some promo codes, as well as for some partners that I have. You can get some products at a discount on the cheap, which will be great. The big thing though, is that month of having our guest with us who's really going to add some context to what we're doing from a master level perspective. It's going to be really affordable. It's going to range between $50 to $75 per month. You can buy it as a per month basis, or you can buy the entire package for a discounted price either way. And what I really want to do is keep the number relatively small. So that way I can interact with the group of people that sign up for it on a regular basis. We'll do some more lives, cover some subjects that'll be specifically to that. So it gets you a lot of value in what you're doing, and I also want to make sure that we can take the time that if maybe you're in a part of the world where it's a little bit more challenging, that I can step it through with you, and that is something that I just don't see anybody doing a good job of, that if you're choosing to grow plants or garden in Arkansas versus someone who's doing it in Wisconsin. Boy, you guys have different things on your agenda at different times of the year. And boy, your approach should be a little bit different. And your palette of what you grow should be different. And your soil prep and everything, the whole timeline shifts. And yet, as I started this podcast, I talked about people that were putting out information out there that was real blanket and general. And that just scares me so much when I see it then I know that if we put some of this information out there in a real generic kind of way that's not tailored to you and what you're doing in gardening school, it's just not going to work. It's just not. I have been really fortunate to travel the country many times over, like 220 days a year for like six years over, and visit with people growing gardens and Independent garden center owners and companies, landscaping companies, and experts in the horticultural field in the United States, and seeing pretty much everything and seeing the challenges and the differences that everybody faces. So, I think it's one of the ways that I'm uniquely positioned to be a good resource for people is that I'm able to speak to real specifics of the difference and the challenges in growing something in like Maine versus growing it in Georgia and addressing how you need to philosophically look at gardening and approach it differently. So the gardening school is going to bring all that to the next level, really personalize it for you as an experience and be able to get you the most out of it. So when it does go live, I strongly encourage you to sign up early because I'm keeping both the online And the local participant number of it, very low. Because otherwise, it'll just be too many things for me to do. There's only one of me, right? So if I have like 400 people sign up for this thing, that's all I'll be doing all day. But I have have things to do. I mean, if we do have 4 we'll see. I think 30 sounds like a good number. More than 400. 400 just sounds ridiculously unmanageable. And I want to make sure that you have a really good experience with it. So that'll be Gardening School that we'll launch here in, in September. And the first month that will actually happen in October. This is how we're going to go with the podcast moving forward. We're going to have these talks, these conversations. We'll mix in guests, it'll be spicy. I have reached out, by the way, follow up to last week's podcast to my friend in the Pacific Northwest. I've requested an interview. I don't think we're ever going to see that happen, although it would be one of the greatest pieces of content anyone has ever created. I would like to get someone on the podcast who can sort of maybe do some explaining to how the cut flower thing has been grown and how a lot of the information is actually negative for gardeners and even for the people trying to do this as a profession and how the information has not been really versatile or accessible for other people, and I find that to be a real bummer because what we really need are people that are super passionate gardening people to get involved in the cut flower world. We need people that really embrace it, I think, from a plant-gardening-first perspective because I think then you're going to have a much more experimental mind and want to seek out really new things, really interesting things consistently, give yourself challenges every year, and we're going to have a better cut flower industry at a boutique level. If we do that, if we don't, and everybody just keeps growing the same things, and it's this whole wildflower look 24-7, it's going to be difficult to have any separation in the market. And then, therefore, the big international flower farms win. We all lose. It's sad. At the end of the movie, everybody goes, what? I thought the good guys were going to win. Oh, is it that subjective if there's good and bad? Who knows? I'll let you make that moral call. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can always rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on wherever you get podcast information. And that is a big thank you. Because every time you do that, it drives it up in the algorithm. It helps out everyone. You learn, I learn, we all learn. Cheaters cheat and liars lie
1: Without cause or alibi They don't know cause they don't care In love and war all is fair Hearts are broken, love goes stale The real world ain't no fairy tale. Nothing turned out like you thought Now look at all the time you've lost You'll never get it back Oh, you should have Most would have realized that Die. he gave you all you'd ever need but satisfaction never comes with grief he'd hoped all you need was time but there was something just to ease his mind You broke his heart, you broke this home And there's something that he can't condone